The big question this morning is, what is the church? Now, that seems like a very easy answer, but I think if we were to go around this room and, and ask questions about what is the church, I bet we would get an array of answers. And ironically, what you even see throughout church history, you see multiple denominations, you see multiple, multiple traditions. And if you were to ask that question, it, it's, it's, the irony is it's rare to find a definition on of what the church is. If you were to go to uh, different denominations or different creeds or different traditions, you'll find statements of faith or doctrinal um, statements on issues relating to speaking in tongues all the way to the end times. But when it comes to what is the church, it's, it's, it's very rare that you get a clear and concise uh, definition of the church. I remember even thinking back to the days that I wanted to come here in 2007 and uh, be a church planter and see the gospel take root and plant Integrity Church. I remember hearing uh, when I would tell people, I want to be a church planter. And, and most of the time what people would say is, so you are going to what? You're going to go buy a building and then you just start services? Like they would ask that question about buying a building. One guy actually said, I did not know you were an architect. I was like, well, I'm not an architect, you know, um, because we don't need a, a building to do that. And so sometimes it's the building. Sometimes it's the Sunday morning service. That's the church. It's everything that the church is, is, is what we do on Sunday. Um, and so breaking American Christianity from the idea that church is just what you do on Sunday or um, it's just a building is, is perhaps one of the most uh, difficult hurdles to cross when we deal with American Christianity. I don't even say uh, specifically here in the South. But here's the thing about that. Most of us in this room, if we're honest, we were not drawn to the church initially because the Sunday morning service went really well. All right? That most of us were not drawn that way. Uh, for me, for instance, I became a believer when I was 11 years old. Uh, my dad and I lived together. We were bachelors at that point, and we just became believers. I went to a Christian school, heard the gospel, came, shared the gospel with my dad. Later on, he became a believer, and then we just started going to this small church a couple blocks down the road. The only reason why we went is because it was close, and I've got to tell you, I don't remember the sermons at all. I, I don't remember the songs at all. I remember the songs were really boring, all right? I remember the sermons were very long. But the reason why I wanted to go back is because there was an elder lady, elderly lady there who knew my name. And she came up to me and she said, it's your birthday coming up this month. I was like, how did you know that? Like elderly women, it seems like they have this, this weird sixth sense, like they know when your birthday is. And so she would come up and she would give me a card, and, and in that card was a quarter for each year I was born. And so at this point, I was 11 years old, so 11 quarters I received, right? I was like, I cannot wait until I'm 50 when this stuff adds up, you know? And then she just, and then she would come, and then I would have, I remember when my dad and I, we wanted to be baptized, we had pastors from the church come and sit in our living room, and they prayed with us. And they walked through the gospel with us. They made sure I understood the gospel at 11 years old. And then I remember the, the youth pastor and the youth pastor's wife, they would come and they would speak into my life. They would tell me I have certain spiritual gifts and I need to use them for the church. And so it wasn't 
for me, what drew me back, it wasn't the preaching. It wasn't even, it wasn't the music. It wasn't the building. It wasn't the programs. It was the people that God used over and over and over again in my life to bring me to that. And so the church has to be both gathered so we gather together to hear and worship and praise the Lord, and we both, and we also have to scatter. There has to be some sense of gospel-centered community because that is really going to be the draw. That's going to be the draw. And so let me explain the church gathered. The church gathered is, is what we do on Sunday. Everything that we do is worship. I know we try to hijack the word with Worship being, it's just songs. That's what worship is. Now we're going to worship, and then we're going to hear preaching, like as if you're not worshiping when you're hearing preaching. But everything we do from the moment that you're greeted, from the fellowship that we have in the hallway, to the time that we come in, to when we hear singing, when we, when we um, praise the Lord through song, when we hear preaching, when we respond through communion, when we take up offering, when we re- repent of our sins, when we... Uh, we have fellowship with believers at the end, when we leave. Actually, when you get home, that's worship too. I don't know if you know that. Actually, when you eat, that's worship. But everything we do here on Sunday is to gather our people together so that we can collectively worship because it encourages one another to love and to cherish Jesus more. And so it's a good thing that we do our service as well, that people aren't weirded out that the atmosphere is warm and welcoming, that people are friendly, that things are very clear, that my sermons are prepared, right? It's very good. But the other part of it is that we're scattered. And this means that during the week, we find ourselves in homes in gospel-centered community to do life together. And this is why here at Integrity, we don't just do just Bible studies. Uh, we, we eat together, we serve together, we pray together, we, we love and cherish our city together. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to show you how both the church gathered and the, both the church scattered is significant. And so what you see in Scripture, in Acts, we see the first half of Acts is really Jesus starting the movement that we would call today the church. We see that the Holy Spirit ascended on the disciples, or the apostles, and they began to be Jesus' witnesses, that they would continue the mission of Christ. And so then the Holy Spirit comes, and they began to be missional. They began to reach out, not just in their own context in Jerusalem, but the gospel spread. And the next place they go is Samaria. Where's Samaria? It's where the Samaritans live, and it's where the Jews hated the Samaritans because they weren't fully Jewish. They were half Jews. And then the gospel goes beyond Jerusalem to this place, Samaria. And then they go to small little desert places. And then they go to strategic cities. And this is what you see in the second part of Acts is really God saving a guy named Paul who was once a God hater. And God saves him and redeems him and then uses him as a vessel to make much of Jesus' name. And then the whole second part of Acts is us seeing Paul's missionary attempts and missionary journeys to all these different strategic cities. And so then we, we go up to Acts 17 And here's what you have in Acts 17. Paul goes to a place called Thessalonica, and he begins to proclaim the gospel there. And the Bible even tells us that many people believed, many people believed, but there's also another reaction to the gospel that many people hated the gospel. 
Because here's what you have. Paul, who's a former Jew, he goes to Thessalonica, and man, he doesn't just stand on the street corner and hand out tracts. He actually goes into the Jewish synagogue and preaches the gospel. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. You're a Jew in this century, and Paul, who once was a Jew, now is a believer, and everything that Paul is going to preach is going to be counter what they know. I mean, you imagine you're looking in your bulletin. You get there on Sunday morning, and then he's like, Paul is going to preach? And then he gets up there, and he just lays out the gospel. And the Bible says that many of them believed, but also many of them hated what Paul had to say. Some were jealous of his teaching. There's also said that they began to persecute the church, and people began to ask this question. I love the statement that they make. They said, who is this guy who turned the world upside down? What a great statement. What a great statement. And so here they are in Thessalonica, Paul, Silas. The Thessalonians drive them out of the city. So they travel for two days, and they end up 40 miles away in a place called Berea. And this is where we are this morning in Acts 17. We'll be starting in verse um, 10, and this is kind of where we, where we see things go next. Acts 17, verse 10, it says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the heart of the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So what we see here in verse 12, it tells us immediately you have a gospel impact in in, uh, Berea. Very different than their result in Thessalonica. People here aren't trying to kick them out. They're trying to, they hope that they stick around because here you see this immediate response to the gospel. There's some, there's some high, um, there's some high level Jews becoming believers. And now you're seeing something very different. And here you have, honestly, a gospel centered reaction to hearing the truths of Christ. I want to show you these three things here this morning. This is a gospel-centered reaction here is what we see. So the first thing that we see is they receive the word with eagerness. This is the difference that we see in, uh, in comparison to Thessalonica. They receive the word with eagerness. Now, this is simply evidence of the gospel at work in a person's life. They want to know God's word. People who love the gospel will in turn love and cherish God's word. Uh, I, I told you about the story about my, my dad and I. When I became a believer, I was 11 years old. Um, the thing about me was when I was a believer, I could not, I literally could not read, all right? And the first book that I ever wanted to read was after I became a believer. Do you want to know what book it is? The Bible. The Bible. And it wasn't because I just read Hooked on Phonics and I got really passionate about reading. I did read Hooked on Phonics, but that was way later, all right? Way later. 
So it wasn't some commercial I saw that then inspired me to want to read. It was the work of the gospel in my heart, and it was the work of the Holy Spirit stirring within me a desire to read and know his word. And so what did I do? I just grabbed the first Bible that I found in my house. It was way up near Encyclopedia Britannica. Most of you don't know what that is. It's okay. It's what you used to have to do to learn information um, instead of Google. So you I pull off this big Bible. I begin to read, and I can't understand it because it's King James. And I'm like, God speaks very strange, Dad. I don't understand this book at all. Um, and so can you help me understand it? So they got me like a teen study Bible or something like that. And I began to read, and I wanted to know what God says. And I will never forget this response of mine. I wanted to know and live for God. And tragically, what we often see as a response, a healthy response to a healthy church is, is something very different. What, our, our opinion of what that is is very different. Because here, this is an immediate response to understanding the gospel. This is an immediate response to what health looks like. And the way we often define health is, well, if people are responding to the music, that's a good thing, right? That, that, that God must be doing something there, which I, I, I think is a great thing. Or oftentimes we say, well, that church is really large. They must be doing something right, right? So God must be at work there because that church is large or people respond or they have an incredible amount of programs. Therefore, God is at work. But how do we know that God is at work here in Berea? Because they're eager to hear the word of God preached. This is what excites these people. I want, you to, I want you to track with me here. This is what excites these people is that they immediately receive the word of God and they, ha- they hear it with eagerness. And so what we see in scripture, when you see people who receive God's word with an eager heart, they want to hear what God say and they chiefly cling to what Jesus says. They delight in what Jesus says. I love uh, Charles Spurgeon. He's a, one of the greatest preachers of all time. Um, he says, to me, the Bible is not God, but it is God's voice. And I do not hear it without all. How did Spurgeon say such a comment? Well, it's because it's a result of his deep love for God. And so we have to get to that point in our lives where we cherish the gospel so much that it stirs up our love for his word. The second thing that you see is that they are examining the scriptures daily. This is verse 11. You see them examining the scriptures daily. Now, this is also key here uh, because he, here's what I want to show you. This shows us that they are not lazy Christians, right? And it's not just because they are doing it daily, but it also goes further than that. If you notice verse 11, let me show you verse 11. Let's read that again. Now, the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily, notice this next part, to see if these things were so. You seeing the difference here? This is why they weren't lazy. And look, I love 
technology and what we have at our disposal now. I know most of you, again, I mentioned Encyclopedia Britannica, and you don't know what that is because we have Google and Wikipedia. But here, they are not getting their theology from Wikipedia, all right? Now, I know Wikipedia is incredibly trustworthy because anyone in the world can weigh in on an opinion, and that way you know that it's very useful and helpful. But here you have the Bereans. They have a very different approach. They took what they heard, and they studied the Bible themselves to see if what was being said was accurate. And so they demonstrate a care for God's word that's not spoon-fed. You getting that? So the worst thing you can do is just take my word for everything. that you, Just take my word for it and just go and leave. What we want you to do here at Integrity is, this is why we go through books of the Bible. Take what we're learning and listen to it and study it yourself and build a theology yourself as you're diving into God's word. So they're taking the Bible and they're lining it up with what is being seen and heard. And this is why I think it's dangerous for us in this generation. Look, I... I'm a podcast junkie. I'll be the first to tell you, I love hearing sermons about God's word. I love downloading different people when I'll be in my car and I'll listen to it. I'll be at my desk and I'll listen to it while I'm reading something else. Yes, I can do that. It's weird. God's made my brain differently. Um, But one danger that you often see with Vimeo and podcasts are you have people that build their theology based on what they hear through their earphones and not what they've actually gone to in the text. And so the Bereans have a different response because they're saying, we want to have care for God's word. Man, we know Paul is a gifted teacher. We know Silas is a gifted pastor. We know Timothy is a gifted pastor. But look, we're just going to take this and we're going to go into God's word. But here's what they also did. They did it in community. You guys seen that? They did it in community. This is something they did together, and they did this regularly together. And I really have a belief that heretics are birthed in isolation. But believers, mature believers, grow in community. I've even heard guys say this all the time. I I try to push churches and church planners to, to have small groups in their church, because I think it's so important. And I've even heard a pastor one time, he told me, he said, I disciple people from my sermons. And I'm like, dude, you must be an incredible speaker, first of all. Because here's the thing, I, I do disciple people from my sermons. Look, I'm a, I obviously love sermons. That's how I get paid, right? But we don't focus primarily on this is what's going to cycle. This is going to challenge you. This is going to spur you on. But I really think that you understanding the gospel clearly and understanding God's word clearly happens from the sermons plus community. So it's the word of God being taught plus community. That is what equals life change. I just don't think I'm that good. I just don't think I'm that good. I'm not good enough to say, if you hear what I say, that's going to change your life. I believe that, God, that God's word is powerful and quick and sharp and sharper than a two-edged sword. All the things that we see in scripture about God's word, I believe that. 
but also believe that God has also equipped other believers to help walk alongside of you the things that we're learning and hearing together, and they're spurring you on to know that truth, and they're holding you accountable to that truth. I can't hold all of you accountable. I can't. It's impossible. Impossible. And so here you have people, this Berean church, they have this incredible sense of community, and it's really around, built around the teaching and the preaching of God's word. And I got to tell you, when this is fleshed out, it is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. In my own life group, I have seen the transparency around the table that has, honestly, it's astounded me. It, It shocked me. I mean, here you have guys that are college students, you have young professionals, you have married guys with kids, you have retired guys that are all in this room sharing together. They all struggle with the same stuff, by the way, all right? Me included. I've had guys where they be like, look, I'm having trouble parenting. I need, I need accountability in my life for parenting. I need people to walk alongside. I have guys say, this is what I'm struggling with. I've been struggling with this for a long time, and I really need prayer in this area. I've had a student say, we're trying to share the gospel with a Muslim. We need you to pray for him by name every day this week if you can. We've got, I've got a couple more shots to share with him, and I don't think he's going to hear me anymore unless we do. And so we begin to pray earnestly, God, would you just use this guy to share the gospel with this Muslim? And we go on and on. I even had one guy who said, look, I have these addictions to these drugs. And he listed all the drugs, and we're like, okay, wait a minute, so I, But in that, we have this philosophy here that, look, everything is okay except for lying. If you lie to us and you're not transparent, that's the worst thing you could do. But if you're honest and transparent when the gospel takes root in your heart and God's word begins to speak to your heart and you begin to see transformation happen, you need other believers to walk with you, alongside of you with the gospel. And this is where gospel community really happens. And so we need this sense of God's word, yes, Absolutely. The worship with God's people, yes, absolutely. But we also need the sense of being scattered so where we can do life together because we believe that is where transformation happens. And then you have this other piece of it that we see in the text. Because not only are they seeing God's word work, but they're also seeing God's community work. And then what you see from that is an overwhelming sense of joy that is oozing out of this church and it's bleeding into the community and people begin to hear. And what happens here in the text is that 40 miles away, the people from Thessalonica, they begin to hear what's happening in Berea and they're mad. They're mad. Look with me if you will. Verse 13. But when the Jews... And Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also. They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy, what did they do? They remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now here they are, they begin to face persecution by what? What God is doing in Berea. 
the cherishing of God's word and the cherishing of God's community. And then it begins to bleed out so far that 40 miles away, people begin to hear about it and they begin to come. They begin to persecute this church. But what I love is it doesn't stop the gospel from moving. It doesn't stop the gospel from working. In fact, it actually helps the gospel continue that they are facing persecution. And what you'll see that often this happens in the, Old, in the New Testament. When people begin to persecute the church, then the gospel explodes. And so what happens is two things take place. One is that Paul is then sent off. Two, you have Timothy and Silas staying. Now, why is this so significant? Because here you have this sense of maturing and multiplying. Paul and Timothy and Silas are pastors. They are disciple makers. And so what the church of Berea needs, as they're hearing these new truths and they're in community together, they need shepherds and leaders to help them continue to mature in their love for God and his word. And then you have Paul, who's a church planter. God is using him and these circumstances in his life to send him out to do what? To plant more churches. And so this is, the church just doesn't exist just to stay in one city or region. It exists to be a movement of God, that it would reach the, the nations of God. So, so here you have two things that are happening, maturing and multiplying. Maturing and multiplying. These believers at Berea, they need to mature. Why they need to mature? So they can continue to multiply. So they can continue to plant more churches. They can continue to make more, much of Jesus. And so we have both of these things. And so here at Integrity, we've listed down everything that we do based on two big ideas, maturing and multiplying. Why do we go through books of the Bible? So we can mature. Why do we do gospel-centered communities? So that we can mature, so we can love God more. We can glorify him more. Why do we do that? So that we can multiply, so that we can continue to make much of Jesus, so we can plant more churches, so that we can send out more missionaries. And all of this comes from a community who listens to God and takes him at his word. And that love happens in community and that love overflows into loving the city. And that word then overflows to loving the world. It's a beautiful picture, beautiful picture of maturing and multiplying. So what does this mean for us today? How do we then become more like the Bereans. How, how, do we, how do we get that here at Integrity? And I think it really comes down to one big, massive question. Are you teachable? Do you have an eagerness for God's word and God's community? I gotta tell you in scripture, teachability is massive. I mean, you see Jesus throughout the Gospels. And Jesus, as he's gathering his disciples, he says really shocking things. I know we have this strange view of Jesus where he's this really calm, zen-like, hippie guy, right? He's got the little sheep on the back of his neck, and he always makes really weird shrugs and says really weird proverbs that we don't understand or parables that we don't understand. But here's the thing. Jesus would often say very shocking things. And I read Jesus' words, I, I tremble often. Because I'm like, Jesus said that? Are you sure? You know, I'm like, Wikipedia, did he really say that? You know, and, uh, and so here, here's the thing. 
about Jesus with his disciples. There are times that he tells the disciples to go into specific cities. And I want you to notice here in Matthew 10, this is just one occasion. There's a couple of different times this happens. This is one occasion in Matthew chapter 10, verse 11. I want to show you. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says this. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, that's the second time that's mentioned. Let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not, listen, receive or listen to your words. If anyone doesn't receive or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, this is the words of Jesus about people with hard hearts who are not teachable. He tells the disciples, wipe the dust off your feet and keep moving. I will be the judge of those people. And this is shocking because this is Jesus telling his disciples, don't waste your time here. Continue to teach the word of God. You're doing it for me anyway. You're not doing it for all these responses, but don't waste your time here. So how do you answer the question, Am I teachable? How do we answer that question? Well, the first of all, it's going right back to the text. Do we respond like the Bereans do? Do we respond to God's word? That's the first thing. Do we respond to God's word? Here in Integrity, since we go through books of the Bible, you'll hear hard things. You'll hear very difficult and challenging things, and some of those things you just won't like initially. But does God, through that, take that moment in your life to draw you back to his word, to study it for yourself like the Bereans with a teachable and willing heart to know him more? God, I don't like this. This is very frustrating. This is very hard. I want to understand it. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to go to God's word. I'm going to have other believers speak in this area of my life. I'm going to have people challenge me that are older than me, that are younger than me even, if it takes, to know this word and cherish this word. And the second way that we know if we're teachable or not, how do you respond to community, to God's community? Are you in community? Are other believers around you speaking into your life? When was the last decision that you made that you actually said, hey, I need your opinion on this. You're a person who loves Jesus. You're above reproach. I need you to speak into this area of my life. Are you accountable to other believers? Who's, who is discipling you? Are you discipling others? Are you known? Are you known? And that shows a teachable heart. So it's really, just really two simple things that we see here in the text. Are we accountable to Jesus and are we accountable to others? Do we love and cherish God's word and do we love and cherish the community that God has brought to in our lives. And so it's my prayer that if we grab this truth and we wrestle with God in his word and we wrestle with God in the community that he's put around us, 
that that would then translate to a love and an affection for Jesus that would then overflow into Greenville and throughout the world. That as the Thessalonians, they drove 40 miles to see what was going on. And that would be said about us. These are people that love God's word and God's people. So my prayer is that we would be like the Bereans. God help us. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us and we're so grateful. And we give you all the glory.